Life Audio. Hey, welcome back to Salty Saints Podcast. I'm Zach. And I'm Randy, and we've got a great, an absolutely great interview today. Yeah, I'm super excited. And we only had to film it twice because (laughs) everything went wrong with the sound. That's right. And then we figured it out. For the most part, I think we should be good to go. Well, we did sound. If I remember right, we were not able to video it, right? Right, right, right. That was the problem. So, so... But that's okay. You guys don't even care because we don't put any of this up on YouTube anyways. Regardless, this is Richard Rains. We are talking about the faith of George Washington. Was George Washington a Christian? That's what we're getting to the heart of today. And uh, we're going to get to that right after a word from our sponsors. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening to another episode with us. We are sitting here with our new friend, Richard Rains. This is actually kind of part two of trying to record this interview because we ran into some some goofy stuff round one. Um, but we are super excited to, to get to hear about his, his book, Finding Washington. Um, Richard, do you want to tell us a little bit about who you are and, and uh, what this book is? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. I um, feel like I know you pretty well now. So, uh, um, so yeah, so uh, I live in Northeast Florida, um, and I uh, teach world religions and theology and uh, history of Christianity for a couple of different schools. I have another full-time job, and I teach part-time, but I do teach for a couple of different schools. And so, um, married with five kids, um, uh, my wife is employed by our church, and and then she does some other other things part time. She's a nurse practitioner. Um, oldest kid's twenty three, youngest is um, is sixteen, and the eighteen year old is joining the navy today. So it's a busy time for the reigns. But uh, yeah, so um, wrote a book during COVID. A lot of us did a lot of uh, things we didn't think we were going to do uh, during COVID. But I had to have something to to take up for all the time I wasn't spending at work uh, on the road. But um, but yeah, I wrote a book, Finding Washington is the title, Why America Needs to Rediscover the Virtues of Her Most Essential Founding Father. Um, and so I wrote a lot about uh, George Washington's life, his, 
his successes and failures, uh, his virtues, and um, um, you know, when it's time, I can get into why I wrote the book and, and all of that. But that's a little bit about who I am. No, I love that. That's great. Um, I, I think this will be a good time to talk about, you know, why why did you write the book? Um, I understand that we're living in some pretty crazy times in the world, and and that could spark a lot of things. Um, what what was the um, final straw that kind of got you going down this path to make this book happen? Yeah, so that great question. Um, the the catalyst essentially uh, for writing the book was um, I've always known that I, that I was going to write a book. I've always done uh, a lot of freelance writing, uh, writing for magazines. I wrote a newspaper column that ran for uh, uh, for several years called Grace Notes, ran in several newspapers um, uh, throughout Georgia, and so I always had this idea that I wanted to write a book didn't know how many books I had in me. So I knew I had one shot at it. And really the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back for me uh, was after the, the presidential primaries in 2016, um, after the Republican and after the democratic primaries. And, and I'm, I make a lot of people upset when I say this, but fortunately for me, it makes almost all people upset. So, so I'm an equal opportunity offender. And so um, when the Republican primary and the Democratic primary were over in 2016, and I write about this in the book, that I was left with the worst presidential candidate in history or the second worst presidential candidate in history to choose from. And so uh, from my perspective as a Christian, as an evangelical Christian, um, I was left to try to figure out who to vote for for president, and neither one of them seemed to, to really um, sh- reflect my values. Um, and I say in the book that I had the choice between someone who uh, destroyed cell phones with a hammer in a basement um, or someone that I couldn't trust to be alone with my daughters. And so I started researching, uh, okay, what, what can I say to our culture to help reset the clock, to, to start to really make um, morality and make virtue important again. And this was, this was, George Washington was not my first uh, choice. I was going to write a different book, but I started researching uh, George Washington. And the more I learned about him and uh, the things that he did and the values that he had, um, the more I just became convinced that I really didn't have any other choice, uh, but to try to address our current sort of cultural problems uh, by looking at one of the most one of the people really, and, and I'm not the only one to say this, a lot of historians say this, that George Washington really was the most essential American for a lot of different reasons, uh, guys, not just because he, he was head of um, the, 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 the uh, Continental Army. Um, we would not be a republic, believe it or not, today if it had not been for George Washington. And I, I go into that a little bit in the book, but essentially what I do is, is I tell stories from the life of George Washington, a lot of stories that even me as a historian had never heard before. Um, I talk about those events and then I try to identify virtues that he displayed in those historic moments. And then I make an argument for why we need to revive those virtues in our society. And I don't mind telling you just a little bit of a, 
you know, a little bit of an honest perspective here. Um, most everything that I've done, um, teaching, writing, speaking um, in my adult life has been from the perspective of either someone teaching theology or someone opening the Bible and teaching the Bible to people or uh, someone writing about specifically sort of Christian topics. And so when I was putting this book together, it, I really struggled in the beginning with whether or not I would write a book for people who are not really that familiar with, you know, Christian verbiage and how evangelical Christians talk and approach things. Like, am I going to write this for a purely secular audience and hope that some Christians read it? Or should I write a book just for Christians and hope that there's some spillover? Or should I try to blend the two, which seemed to be the worst option? Um, and so in, in true fashion, um, for me, I chose that third option, which was, okay, I'm going to write a book about George Washington from my Christian perspective. I'm going to be objective about George Washington. Um, the book is not just about Washington's faith, but I do talk about Washington's faith quite a bit. And I do think it is a foundational principle for a lot of the things that I say. And um, I'm going to appeal to uh, our I'm going to appeal to Americans generally that we need a revival of the type of virtues that Washington displayed because we are in trouble. Uh, I mentioned in the introduction that I have five children and I, I really feel like that my wife and I for, you know, our entire marriage since we've had kids have been at war with our culture. And uh, we live in a part of Florida um, we live in the wealthiest county in Florida. Now, we are not wealthy, but there are a lot of wealthy people in our county, so much so that it drives our median income up significantly. And so um, what we witness here in our county in Florida is that you've got all these middle to upper class people and kids that have a lot of money and they have no morals and they have no values. And we um, from our perspective as parents trying to raise kids in what we consider a moral cesspool um, uh, that you look around and culturally we are very violent, culturally we are very, we are over-sexualized. Um, just when you think we can't become more sexual as a culture, someone surprises us with a song on the radio or a video or something happens at the Super Bowl or something else, right? Um, and then, so how do we counter that? And so um, I talk about George Washington, and then I make the case for why we need more virtue in business and in politics and in the home and in um, neighborhood watch and in homeschool associations and everywhere that we look, we need uh, more virtue, not less. So really, that's that's the premise and that's the heart of the book. Man. From that alone, I've got like 20 different directions I want to go, and I'm trying to like figure out which one to go first. But I, I think the, the most important thing to me is uh, that you're not really, you, you don't seem to be approaching this from like a Christian nationalist perspective, because I think the really, like the knee-jerk reaction of everybody is to overcourse correct. And so like to come, like combat the like, immoral teachings of the world 
we dig our heels in and go as far right as humanly possible. And I think that's a dangerous place to be as well. Um, but the fact that you're just kind of saying like, look, America needs God. So does every other country. We all need God. We all need to, to bend the knee to God. Um, but we as Americans are responsible for our little corner of the world. And we got to we gotta call our people to godliness. I think that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, with that said, I, I really like uh, the, the fact that you are honing in on these particular stories to point out these virtues. What story stands out to you the most, maybe as a favorite or as just uh, something that really captures the essence of Washington for you? Yeah, so that is that is the second most asked question I get, and it is my least favorite question to answer because it's like it's like which of your kids do you love the most? And anecdotally, I'll tell you how I answer that question. By the way, because I have five kids, um, when my kids were young, um, they would want something. They would ask me if they could have something or go somewhere, and I would say no, and they would say why, and I would say well, because there are five of you. And I have enough love in my heart on any given day for your mother and four of you. And today is not your day. So that's the way I would do that <laughs> with the kids. So um, you should have asked me yesterday because yesterday was your day. So I'm stealing that from you, man. That's that's going to be in my back pocket for years to come. I like oh, yeah. It, yeah. It's a it's a goal of mine to never give my kids a straight answer. Uh, it, it, it's so fun to see them get frustrated. Can't you just answer me? Well, probably, but there'd be no fun in that. So, um, so I guess I'll really regret that when I'm drooling on myself when I'm 90 and no one's going to take care of me. So here's my favorite story about George Washington. Um, so, and it's the first story that I really cover um, in the book, and it's a story about failure. And you would think that if you're going to write a story about George Washington, who his generation saw as their Superman, um, it, it shouldn't be about failure. So George Washington was in the Virginia militia, and I won't tell you how he started it, but George Washington, as a member of the Virginia militia, started the French and Indian War. Not was part of the beginning. He made a decision that started a war between England uh, and the French, who then had the Native Americans on, on their side. So, so he's part of the militia. The, 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 the army, the English army, puts him in charge of Fort Necessity, which is in Ohio, and in uh, in the 1700s, um, Ohio represented the western frontier of the colonies of the of this new nation, or you know this this land that that England um, had. So so George Washington was put in, in, in charge of Fort Necessity. He's uh, he's trying to uh, to to build the fort up, um, trying to get his men in shape, and so he goes out looking for the French, tries to establish some. Um, some uh, uh, some contacts with the Native Americans and woo them to his side. It doesn't work. So he says, you know what? I just need to go back to the fort and I need to, to make sure that we've got everything we need. He, he works on trying to get supplies. He doesn't get enough supplies. Um, and so then he's ready. The French are going to attack. He knows it. He just know, doesn't know when and where, but he's like, okay, um, here's the field where we will probably fight because as civilized uh, Europeans, we're going to face each other in this field and just shoot each other. Well, uh, the French and the Indians don't get the memo on that and they attack from uh, behind cover and from trees and 
they're running and shooting and 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 in the course of a day i mean it's, it's raining it just couldn't go any worse for george washington it's raining and uh his powder's wet half the men are drunk a third of the men have been killed all the horses are dead and all the all the shooting finally stops and the french send over a wet note saying you can surrender but you have to promise to leave um uh, there's some other things the the note said that Washington didn't have a good translator for, but essentially, Washington and a third of his men were able to get out with their lives. If you fast forward a few months, um, um, the General Braddock, a general in the 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 British Army, uh, lands, uh, meets Washington, can't stand Washington, uh, thinks because he's a colonist and a militiaman that he doesn't know what he's talking about, doesn't take any of Washington's advice. Washington's like, look, they're not going to attack in an open field. The last thing you need to do, General Braddock, is march these bright red coats through this forest because you're going to get men killed. And so Braddock essentially says to him, okay, you have one job. You're an aide-de-camp, which is a really fancy way of saying you're my helper. So you stay with me and you help me. Whatever I need you do, you don't have any role in leading uh, this expedition. So uh, the red coats are marching through the forest and uh, they come up to the Monongahela River and they're trying to clear a way for the, the troops to pass. And just like Washington said they would, uh, the French and the Indians begin attacking. Uh, General Braddock is, is shot almost instantly, uh, but doesn't die. He's off of his horse and Washington uh, watches as uh, the Redcoats just scatter. They run through the forest. They're, they're, let's get out of here, right? They're just bullets coming from behind the trees. Let's get out of here. And um, he gets off his horse. He's helping Braddock to safety. He's taking care of Braddock. Braddock looks around. There's no officer. And so the only officer, the closest thing to an officer that Braddock sees is George Washington, who's really in the militia, not even in the regular army. And he says, okay, I need you to, to mount a defense and a counterattack. And George Washington gets up on his horse. Now, George Washington was six foot two, and the average person, the average male, European male, uh, in in the 1700s was five eight. So there he was, you know, several inches taller on top of a horse, you know, eight foot above the ground. Washington gets on a horse and um, rallies the troops. He mounts a counterattack, and for a full day. For 12 to 15 hours, Washington fights and he leads the army from the back of a horse until they finally drive the French and the Indians away. But that's not the, the interesting part of that story. The interesting part of that story is during that battle, Washington had three horses shot out from under him. Actually, two horses shot out from under him and he was on his third horse. And when the battle was over, he had four bullet holes in his coat. And so fast forward to the end of the French and Indian War, the British win, uh, Washington is, is in Ohio looking at land acquisition that he was given as a part of his role in the French and Indian War. He's there with a physician friend of his and a group of Native American leaders invite Washington to come and meet with them. So Washington goes, he meets with them and these Native American chiefs are sitting around a fire and they say that they all know who he is. And the reason they all know who he is is because they remember him as the hero from Monongahela um, that they felt like God was watching over because everyone sitting at that fire 
pointed their rifles at Washington and fired, and none of them hit him. To the extent that when the Native Americans went back after Monongahela, after the Battle of Monongahela, their religious leaders issued a prophecy about this man, just George Washington, that he would be the father of a great nation. Now, in the book, I say that that is the equivalent to a, a soldier on the beach on D-Day, making such an impact on the German soldiers that they go back to their base after D-Day and write songs about him. And so my favorite story about George Washington is that George Washington failed miserably. In, 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 the, in light of that failure, what Washington did was he humbled himself. He did everything he was supposed to do. He took care of General Braddock. And when time came for Washington to redeem himself, he showed courage and he showed inspiration and he showed heart and he showed this work ethic that no one had ever seen before. And did you know that for the rest of George Washington's life, he would never surrender again, but he would take the lessons he learned from uh, Fort Necessity and from Monongahela. And he would always have an exit strategy. He would always ride out in front of his men first to fight first, and he would always have a way to retreat. And so the virtues in, the, in the, that story, and there's a, a mountain of virtues in that story, but the virtues that he displayed in that was, was that he was a servant leader because he was a guy that knew how this was going to play out. He knew the French were going to attack. He knew Redcoats were going to die. He'd been there, done that at Fort Necessity, and rather than push his way to the front, rather than argue with General Braddock, rather than exercise his rights as someone with experience, he humbled himself as an aide-de-camp. And even when the bullets were flying, and George Washington was the soldier that he knew that he was, even though all of that was happening, George Washington became the aide-de-camp of the century by making sure that he took care of General Braddock before he started fighting, and then he was given an opportunity, and he won. And in the book, I make the case that uh, we are afraid of failure, and because we are afraid of failure, we hide failure, and because we hide failure, uh, we just let our highlight reel play on repeat on social media and in our um, in our resumes and things like that. And because we are so afraid of failure, we are picking people to lead us who've seemingly never failed. And if there's anything I've learned in my career and in my life is that failure is the way you succeed. And I tell a story about WD-40 and some other things, but that's my favorite story about, uh, about George Washington. That's awesome, man. That's a great story. I love that. Um, the, so, I I mean, honestly, that 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 feels uh, like he, he had to have God's hand on him there. I mean, you said he had four bullet holes in his in his coat. Did, did those bullet holes connect or did they miss? No, they missed. That's awesome. See that? Yeah. yeah that's the whole that, point. That's, not a book, yeah. not a scratch on the guy. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. Um, so with that said, I mean, that story shows this very like godlike or, or sorry, godly uh, disposition on how to uh, handle a situation like that. Um, something that I think we should clear up really quick that you and I have spoken about on the phone previously is that 
you know, there's a lot of people listening to this right now probably thinking, well, yeah, that's cool and all, but Washington was a deist. Um, could you clear that up for us? Absolutely. Um, and I'll, I'll say the same thing I shared with you earlier, that the group of people in this country that need Washington, be, Washington to be a deist are secular historians that want to erase any real Christian faith from our founding. It is essential to their worldview that we not be founded on the values that are distinctly Christian values. And so there were some deists among uh, the founding fathers, uh, Jefferson, uh, Thomas Paine, who wrote uh, Common Sense, Benjamin Franklin, probably. Um, but the listen, the version of Christianity that existed in the colonies was not by and large deism. So there, there were two competing worldviews in 1776. One worldview was kings reign by divine right. In other words, God has ordained kings to, to reign and God has ordained kings to oversee people. It'd be easy to be a deist to think that well, God's just going to put kings in charge. So that way that limits his interaction. But that is not what the founding fathers said. When they wrote the Declaration of Vendant, they said, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights. In other words, each individual is endowed with certain rights that come from God. That is not deism. And so, um, but all of that is just speculation when it comes to George Washington. But we do have one story about George Washington that I think proves that he, um, in spite of the fact that he went to church regularly, he, even during the war, um, he would go to church. But uh, there is a story, and there's a painting that most of us have seen um, with George Washington kneeling next to his horse in the snow at Valley Forge praying. And so um, that is that, that painting is is based on a, a real event. Uh, there was a Quaker um, that was walking through the woods, heard a sound, and uh, or he was walking his horse through the woods and heard a sound, and he came upon a man, and this is the way he talked about it in his diary, came upon a man praying to the God of the armies, and he saw it was none other than General George Washington who was in, who was kneeling in the snow by himself, praying uh, for God's hand to guide him and to guide uh, their, their endeavors. George Washington talked about providence a lot. Um, providence, when you, when you talk about providence from a Christian religious perspective, providence is not, does, does not define a God that just simply is content to watch the show, which is what deism is. Deism says, you know, God created everything, he got everything going, and now he just watches the, the movie from, from heaven and doesn't really have any, any real interaction. Providence, on the other hand, is a word that is used to define God. It's, it's literally, from Washington's perspective, it is, another, it is a synonym for God, meaning that God is a God that divinely intervenes when when humans are on the side of God. And so that is how Washington referred to uh, God as, probably talk about providence all the time. I just don't, 
I, I just don't think that from a from an objective historical perspective, you really have to do some acrobatics to try to show that George Washington um, was a was a deist because it's just not there. I, I don't I don't see it because it's not there. Richard, I uh, listened to a podcast a little bit back by uh, Mike Rowe. He was interviewing a fellow from Westminster Theological Seminary. I think he's a historical theologian. His name is Dr. Peter Lilback. If I remember right, he's written, a, and I don't know if it's published or not, but he, but he wrote a book on Washington, like a thousand page book. And Rose said he read it and it's very, <laughs> very detailed, but he said exactly what you just said, that Washington's name for God, his word for God is providence. He actually went through Washington's correspondence and tallied up the number of times that he refers to providence. And he ends up speaking about providence even more commonly than he speaks about something like liberty. So, uh, yeah, uh, this fellow is absolutely in line with what you're saying. He was saying there's no way that Washington could have been a deist. Yeah, it's and, just and, simply not there. And, not in the historical so, record. Something else you said that I it, it's small, but it's so necessary. Um, you said that, you know, Washington believed in a God, not that was removed from us, but that he believed in a God um, that would intervene for his people if they were on his side. And so often I hear people say, well, God's on our side because we're a Christian nation or uh, things like that. But but it's backwards. It's no, 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 no. If we're a Christian nation, then we are to be on God's side, not the other way around. It's kind of like the story of, uh, uh, is it Joshua when the, the angel of the Lord appears to him? Am I getting yeah. this mixed up? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, the angel of the Lord, but he appears as the commander of right, the, the armies. armies. Yeah. Exactly. And, and he says, who are you for? Or uh, whose side are you on? And he says, neither. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> because it's, I'm not on anybody's side. You're on my side or you're or losing. You're not. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that. That's, uh, that's a very biblical picture to paint. I like that. That uh, row podcast, uh, Peter Lilbeck, he makes the point the podcast is called He Has Nodded on Our Undertakings. And that phrase is a rough translation of what is on the back of every dollar bill, uh, right to the left of the big word one in the center is a pyramid with an I at the top and the words Anuit Septus. Uh, he has nodded on our undertakings. And his argument is that is uh, the early church or the early church fathers, uh, the early founding fathers saying God is in this from the start. He has nodded on our undertakings. Yeah, a deistic God could never do that. It would never do would that. Would never do would that. Would never do that. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. That's right. That's very yeah, it's just, it just is a whole water. It's, listen, it's a it's a worldview that has to exist. It, it has to be true that um, that our founding fathers were religious, but not dedicated to their faith. It has to be that way, because if it is that way, that means you get to read the Constitution uh, entirely different. You get to you get to redefine 
you get to redefine who we are, which I think is what's going on. I think part of what's going on, guys, is that we are watching a, a redefinition of morality. We're, we're seeing, and it's been going on since the fall, really, and it just it takes God's people to, to, really, um, to really turn back this tide. But, but you're seeing everything, like we don't even have the, the same language. Language is being redefined, right? Like providence doesn't mean what it means or, or whatever. And so I, I just refuse, I refuse to, to give an inch on some of these things because, you know, there, there's, no, there's no way in the world that as a historian, I would say that we are spotless when it comes to how we've dealt with other people or listen, I have a lot of Native Americans in my family. My, my grandmother was a Creek Indian, a, a full-blooded Creek Indian, and my granddad um, was Cherokee Indian. You can't really tell by looking at me, but, but I have a lot of Native Americans, and we didn't treat the Native Americans great. We didn't treat the Irish great. We certainly didn't treat um, Black Africans great, right? So I'm not saying that we're spotless, but what I am saying is that the principles that the country was founded on, you can find those principles, generally speaking, in the life of George Washington. And I try to uncover those uh, in the book. Yeah. What are some of those virtues that, that you see in Washington that you just go to sleep at night wishing we had a politician that had those virtues today? Oh, <laughs> I would say, yeah, that's a great question. I appreciate that. So, so first is integrity. Um, the story that I, I tell to really highlight his integrity is how he let the Continental Congress know that he was ready to fight. He wore his militia uniform um, to the um, to the meetings, basically telling everyone, "I'm ready to fight." It, it was a it was an act of treason. Just wearing the uniform to that meeting was an act of treason, as as far as the king would have been uh, concerned. And, and then he writes to Martha that he doesn't want to be like he he's not looking to be the head of the Continental Army. It's not what he wants. He's he wants to avoid it at all possible, but knows that it can't be avoided. And and what Washington displays is that he knows what is right and he does what is right. We get the word integrity from a math term, which I'm horrible at math, but I understand what an integer is. An integer is a whole number. It's, it's not a fraction, it's, it's a whole number. And so we get the word integrity from the word integer. And if you are someone of integrity, that means you are a whole person, W-H-O-L-E, whole person. You're not divided morally. And so what Washington displays time and time and time and time again is that, is that he was a person of integrity. He, he knew what was right when he learned that something that he was doing wasn't right, he changed his behavior. And so um, generally speaking, that's how Washington's life can be defined. And so I make the argument, and this is gonna be very difficult for us guys because we're so, we're so divided politically. Like politics is everything. That's all the news talks about. That's what everybody's thinking about is politics. And so what, what I've, what I argue for in the book is that we have got to stop making decisions on who leads us based on what our tribe believes. Like, for instance, I'm a, I, I've been in politics before and I'm a Republican. I'm a conservative Republican. 
I have to stop thinking about who's going to lead this country just in terms of whether or not um, this person that's up for election is a Republican or not. I think that what we should do when it comes to either whether you're in a position to hire people, whether you're in a position to lead people, or whether you're in a position to choose leaders, that integrity, I think, should be the, the first thing that we consider. Integrity should be considered above any other thing. And that was the thing, I guess, that bothered me the most about uh, 2016 was from my perspective in 2016, um, I was left with two candidates that I perceived not to have any integrity. And it kept me up at night. And so if, if, I, could if I could just write one chapter, and if I could just choose one virtue for, for us to revive, it would be the importance of integrity. And guys, from a secular perspective, this has been done before. And you have to go all the way to China to see it, but, but in China, it was, it was corrupt. Uh, people were, were, were cheating their neighbors and business dealings were corrupt. And um, there, there were some ground, some grassroots people that wanted to revive virtue. And so that's how Confucianism essentially became a religion in China. Mm -hmm. And what Confucianism was, what it was, it was a revival of, of the gentleman scholar and a revival of virtue. So, so we can do it. We just gotta, we've gotta wanna do it, right? So that, that's the one thing I think that, that, I would, that I would beat the drum for if I could only beat the drum for one of these things. Yeah, I, I think you're nailing it there. Um, I, you, you said, you know, everything, we're so divided on politics, right? But, but you also um, made mention that, you know, we're, we're redefining words that have meant one thing forever. And now all of a sudden, oh, no, it doesn't mean that. It, it's, it's all subjective. It means mm -hmm. whatever you want. Um, we, we, we can never find common ground in a world where everything's subjective. Like when we just, when we toss truth out the window, everything falls apart. Um, I, I guess that's kind of why when you mentioned Confucianism, um, I think that's a step in the right direction, you know, like to, to, to see that China could get everybody on one page and say, okay, this is, this is how things are going to be now. We're going to go by the teachings of Confucius. But I, I would argue that unless, unless we are grounded on God, everything else is shifting sand that every everything else falls apart sooner or later because god is the only place where logic resides god is the only place where truth exists everything else comes and goes but he stays the same he stays consistent and and that is why i would push that the church needs to be the ones to make this move to make the push for truth and logic and reasoning and rationality and kindness and love and virtue. Um, I really, really uh, think that Washington reminds me of Moses from what you just said um, when he wrote to Martha and said, yeah, I don't want to do this. <laughs> you know, I, I don't want to be the guy, but, I feel like God's telling me I, I've got to be the guy. Yeah, I think he had a sense of, of divine uh, perspective. And I, I just want to say, that, that towards the end of the book, I posed the question, why not Jesus? Because I've spent all my life talking about Jesus, and I teach theology. And, and so, so I really wrestled with, with that. 
And so I'm not saying that, that the way forward for us is pursuing a type of virtue that is devoid of the gospel. The, the gospel of Jesus is the best news humans have ever heard. And if, if, if churches, right, would begin to pray for revival and we would begin to see our, our neighbors um, turn their life over to Jesus and accept this grace that he provides, then there'd be no need for this book. There'd be no need for this general talk about virtue. And so I, I just want to make sure that I say that, that the, the, the gospel of Jesus is the way forward. That is the way forward. But from a, from a secular historical perspective, for me trying to appeal to an audience, a broad audience, to say, look, whether you agree that Jesus is the way forward, and I do say that in the book, I say that I, it's my desire that every human on earth would accept Jesus as their savior and understand the freedom that comes from knowing Jesus the way I have known it since I was a teenager, right? I say that in the book, but generally speaking from a secular historical perspective, if I can get the conversation going about, um, we, 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 we cannot idly observe the, the violence and the over-sexualization and the, the degradation of our culture. We need to turn that tide uh, somehow. And so, um, so I, I, I just want to make sure that I, I say that, that Jesus is the way forward, but I want to get a conversation started about a virtue, and I use Washington to do that. But I do think Washington is somewhat, does have some similarities uh, to Moses um, in that he had sort of a, he had this notion of of a, of a divine path forward. And so I, yeah. I think that because he had that notion of a divine path forward, he refused to give up. And he, at some time, at some points in the war, he was one of the only people really saying that there's, there is no giving up. You, you don't give up when your cause is just. You don't give up when your cause has been has been authoritatively handed over to you through providence. You, you don't give up. And so he just wouldn't give up. And he, he wouldn't even pretend to concede that they were going to lose the war. Never really, in all of his writings, he never really seemed to lose hope. And I don't even want to say it that way. It, it's almost like Washington never really seriously entertained that, that, that we would not be victorious at the end of this. He, he believed in the, in the divine plan that, that he saw that would be America one day. I, I think that he saw that and just refused to believe that there's any way possible that, that we would lose, no matter how bleak the circumstances. And they, the circumstances were very bleak at times. You know, soldiers not having shoes and really no food. They were just baking flour and water and fire ashes. And it was, it got really bleak, but um, Washington maintained his commitment that God was, was the one who was pulling these strings. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, real quick. I just want to say too, I wasn't trying to in, insist that you, that you were saying that we didn't need 
uh, God, but we needed virtue. I was just kind of taking my soapbox moment there. I know you can't see my face because I don't have my video. Well, it's a, listen, it's a, I think it's a legitimate question, though. I think that when Christians read this book, I think they're going to, that's why I include it in the back of it. You know, why aren't you spending all your time talking about Jesus, Richard? And the, the answer that I give is I, I need to get the conversation started with everybody. Yeah. I really do. And honestly, I mean, if, if I'm being, if I'm being honest with you guys, what I want is I want this book to give me a platform so that I can talk about the gospel. If I can get a group of book club moms in Michigan who want to see things change, put me on a zoom to talk about George Washington. If I can get those opportunities to then talk about Jesus, that's really the ultimate goal for me is to use this book to talk about Jesus. That's really the, the point. So it's, 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 I have a lot of birds that I'm trying to kill with this one stone, but that's certainly one of them. But I do think it's a legitimate question to ask. I think it's legitimate to say, hey, Richard, pursuing virtue for virtue's sake is good, but let's not forget about the gospel. I, I, and that I'm on board with that. Awesome. Richard, one of the things that I really enjoyed reading your book is, um, you don't just paint a rose-colored picture to Washington. It's not all virtue. You have a chapter there dedicated to Washington as a slave owner. Uh, you want to talk about that for a little bit? I do, and I appreciate that. That is, that's the number one question I get. And in fact, I was on Twitter. You know how positive Twitter is. Uh, I put an ad on Twitter for the book, and the number one response I got was, "He was a slave owner. He was a slave owner. He was a slave owner." And so. Um, so I do write a book about Washington being a slave owner, and I'll tell you what my take on it is. There are a lot of takes on it, and people who are Washington apologists really try to brush over it. But I want to say in no uncertain terms that Washington failed when it came to slavery. He, he, in his life, he didn't free his slaves. When he died, uh, he left it in his will that the slaves could be free, but only after Martha's death. So he was willing to leave them enslaved until his wife didn't need slaves anymore. So Washington failed us by being a slave owner. Now, that is not the entire picture. And in the book, I talk about the historical reality of slavery. Since humans have existed, there's been slavery. So if your idea of slavery as an institution is only you know, the, the North Atlantic slave trade, then that is a very, a very narrow picture of slavery. So slavery has been a part of the, the, the world economy from as far back as we can possibly track it. I would say that when it came to slavery, uh, Washington was, was a man of his times. Slavery was, was a reality. Um, and he owned slaves, but at some point, and it's really, it's really, um, Lafayette, his friend Lafayette from, from France, that really helped turn him. Washington became to view slavery as something that was immoral, and he wanted to see it done away with. He wanted to see slavery um, abolished. So at some point, what Washington did was he stopped selling. He stopped buying and he stopped selling uh, slaves. And so um, this is even after the war, um, his slave population kept growing and he kept, instead of selling, which were essentially assets, right? And I hate to look at it that way, but for farmers, 
slaves were assets instead of selling these assets to pay his taxes. Um, what he did was he kept them because he made a commitment not to buy and sell humans anymore. So what Washington and Lafayette tried to do was they enacted a plan to end slavery in the United States. So they bought land down in West Indies. And what they wanted to do is they wanted to create sharecropper farms where they would send their slaves to West Indies as, as freed men and women, put them on land that Washington owned and have them sharecrop the land. And that way they could, they could work, they would be free and they would just be, they would be sharecroppers. And so that plan never worked out. Um, but Washington wanted to see an end of slavery before the constitution was ratified, but it, it didn't happen. And so what I try to say about that is um, you can't look back on history and judge people in the past, generally speaking, I'm saying generally speaking, it, that's not how you look at history. You don't look at history and you say, well, um, the majority of the people in the world had this certain ethic and we don't have that ethic anymore. We see that as, as um, a bad ethic. And so we're gonna judge them and we're gonna throw out every good thing they've ever done. That's not how history works. And I use abortion as an example of that. Now I am about as pro-life as they come. Um, I am on the extreme end of what would be considered the pro-life argument. The other extreme end of the pro-life argument is let's try to figure out a way for all women to kill their babies, right? That's those two extremes. Me saying that it's the new Holocaust, the other side saying that the only thing better than an abortion is more abortions. Uh, that's the two extremes. That's not where most Americans are. Most Americans are in the middle somewhere with let's try to narrow abortions and um, try to help women who are pregnant, right? That's kind of where most people fall. So what if, let's just say 500 years pass and science conclusively, even though I think science has conclusively decided, but let's just say that science conclusively determines that human life begins at conception and there's no argument anywhere in science about that. Let's just say that that happens. Well, then let's say that that generation says anybody who was in favor of abortion on any level, we're gonna discount anything they've ever done. We're gonna tear statues of any president down, uh, any actor who won an Academy Award that supported abortion, we're gonna revoke their, um, their Academy Award. Like we're, gonna, we're gonna erase those people from our culture because they're just a bunch of barbarians. Well, that doesn't reflect how the average person views abortions, right? The average person is sort of moderate on abortion. Well, the average person in 1776 was just as divided as we are about abortion today. And the average person was moderate about it. We should probably find a way to end slavery, um, at least be kinder to the slaves, that, that sort of thing. Um, let's end slavery um, um, slowly, which was really Washington's plan. And so the point that I make is that you can't discount everything Washington did because he failed us and he failed his slaves by not setting them free before he died, right? So you can't discount everything he did. But what you can say is that um, Washington wasn't Jesus. You can say that Washington failed and you can say that he, he certainly 
Um, because of his inability to settle that issue, he left us with a problem that he and his contemporaries um, basically drove us to a civil war. And so one of the things about this whole issue of Washington being a slave owner, that I think that that highlights how that highlights how confusing it gets was that um, there was a, a former slave, I believe she lived in New York. Her name was Phyllis Wheatley. Phyllis Wheatley wrote a poem about George Washington. And in her poem, she thanked God for him and had all these great and wonderful things to say about George Washington. And so the point that I'm trying to make is Phyllis Wheatley was a slave who wrote a poem about George Washington, who was a slave owner. And in Phyllis Wheatley's poem, she's thanking God that he gave us George Washington, and she's thanking God for all of Washington's contributions. And if a former slave can say those things about a slave owner during the time when slavery existed, it means that this issue is a lot more complicated than we think. And I don't think that we can discount everything Washington did because he was a slave owner. But I do think you can say that he failed us, he failed his slaves, and it would have been a much better story and probably a much better book if he would have done the right thing and freed his slaves. I mean, he freed them after Martha, um, after Martha died, but I, I'm not willing to give him any, I mean, I, I'm not willing to really say that that was, I mean, he freed his slaves after he was dead and didn't need them anymore. I just don't know that you get much credit for that. And I don't even think you get credit for saying that you treated your slaves kindly. Like we don't, we don't give rapists, you know, a, a break because they told their victim they loved them. Right. So I just don't think he gets credit for being nice to his slaves. And I don't think he gets credit for uh, freeing them after Martha died. Um, I think that he failed us, but I do think that, that doesn't negate all the other good things he did. Well said, man. Very well uh, said. I think that's great. Uh, I think that yours is one of the fairer takes I've seen on it. You, you didn't try to cut him any slack and you kept it real, but just calling it what it is. It's a complex situation. I mean, it's, you're exactly right. That Honestly, before I read this book, the very first thing that came to mind was, I wonder if he's going to talk about Washington and slavery. And then my very next thought was, and how is that different than people today with abortion? I promise you that was what I thought. <laughs> and then I opened that chapter and I was like, okay, he nailed it. Got it. Um, so yeah, very, very interesting. With all this said, man, we are nearing the end of our time. I do want to hear though, your final thoughts um, on what, what do we do? What, what do we do today? It seems like the world's falling apart all around us. It seems like we're even divided within the church on a lot of things. Um, you've picked out George Washington as, as the guy to look to in this situation. But if we're being honest, there's a lot of really great historical figures um, to look at. But when we take these virtues from people like George Washington what how do we turn around and then start modeling that in our own lives to change the world around us now yeah that's a great question i think that's the question and i do give uh, some instances in the book where we do that for instance 
at the very next election, whatever that is, whenever that is, whether it's for school board or dog catcher or president, <laughs> at the very next election, the, the number one priority for choosing a candidate should be which candidate exercises the most integrity, right? Which candidate exercises the most servant leadership? Which candidate has conviction? I think that what we do is in our own life, in our own circle, like me with my family, um, I think putting our phones down and engaging with the people around us, I think learning to have empathy, which is something that, that, that Washington exhibited. I think courage, I think courage is, is missing. We have this feigned courage, like, you know, letting somebody have it on social media that you'll never meet is not courage, right? Being a social media warrior is not really courage. I mean, courage to do the right thing. I tell my kids all the time that doing the right thing is always the hardest, always. It's always gonna be harder to do the right thing. And I think that beginning to have courage to do the right thing, even in um, situations where it will be easier to not have courage. And I think that, that the way we change things is if you read the book and I, I identify the virtues, which are you know, learning from your failure, integrity, servant leadership, conviction, inspiration, character, empathy, courage, and hope. And I think that, and I'll talk about hope in just a second. That'd be the last thing I, I say. But I think that what we do is in whatever our sphere of influence is, is that we adopt a, we adopt a mindset that in our personal lives, we are going to have virtue. If I own a business, I'm going to start hiring people based on virtue and integrity. If I'm, uh, you know, if I'm putting together um, a group of people to coach Little League, um, we're going to we're going to choose virtue and we're going to choose character. Right. We have to start making uh, that change. And I think that out of all the people in the country that are tasked with this more than anybody, it should be Christians should be tasked with this. Because the, and I wrote something to my wife this morning. They're going through Ephesians at the, the she's on a mission trip and they're studying Ephesians. And so um, when she's, my wife does a lot of mission trips. And when she's out of town, if I know what they're going to be studying the day before they're going to study it, I always send her an email with, with you know, with my notes. And we were looking at Ephesians 1, uh, Ephesians 1 today. And I spent all this time looking at Ephesians 1. And Paul says, in Christ eight times in Ephesians one, he says it 130 something times in all of his letters. And it just made me think about the things that Jesus had to say about the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of this world. The, the ethics and the virtues and the morality of the kingdom of this world are what they are. But the kingdom of God is different. And I think that if there's anybody in this country that should bear the burden of restoring virtue back to our culture, it, are, it is Christians because the kingdom of God is within you, right? That's what Jesus said. And so I think that we should, by virtue of the divine nature that works in us, it's, we call it sanctification. The Eastern church calls it theosis, but the, this, this, what, what second Peter said was this, this um, participation in the divine nature is what Peter says, this transformation that takes place in us as Christians that creates in us uh, the fruit of the spirit, right? To be loving and joyful and peaceful and patient and kind and good and full of faith and self-controlled and gentle. And then we, by nature, as members of the kingdom of God, have these virtues that we can now teach other people. And so we should bear 
the burden. So I think it's starting with your sphere of influence, whether it's your family, your church, or whatever. So the last virtue that I talk about in the book is hope. When they were, when the Constitutional Convention, this is, you know, obviously after the, the Revolutionary War, um, America was under the Articles of Confederation, that wasn't working. George Washington got some people together at, at his house to talk about a Constitutional Convention, and, and then, then they had a Constitutional Convention that he was the president of that convention. And so um, towards the end of the convention, they were having trouble with this couple of issues between large states and small states and northern states and southern states. And Washington gets up and he says, to please all is impossible and to attempt it would be in vain. The only way, therefore, is to form such a government as will bear the scrutinizing eye of criticism. And this is what I really want to focus on and trust it to good sense and patriotism of the people to carry it into effect. George Washington placed his hope in us. He said, look guys, we're gonna argue, we're not gonna all agree on the same thing, but we have to trust that future generations will have the good sense and the patriotism to carry it into effect. Meaning that good sense, meaning that they're not a bunch of, not a bunch of functional idiots and they have patriotism, meaning that they love our country. Even as imperfect as it is, they love it. And so um, I think that, um, that above all else, we place our hope in, in the fact that restoring virtue in our society is, is something that God approves of. God's for that. God is for humans loving each other, and God is for humans um, living with virtue. And so I think that as long as we know that, then we can place hope in Jesus. We can place hope in um, his ability to work through us to see cultural change. We, I, I just don't, I'm not handing my kids a better world than my dad handed me. And now that bothers me. And so this is, this book, Finding Washington, is my way of addressing that. And I hope, hope your listeners will get it and send me an email. Absolutely. How could they email you if they'd like to reach you? Yeah. So first of all, you can get the book anywhere online. You can go to uh, Amazon and get it. Um, uh, Barnes and Noble, most any online retailer. Um, and, and that's the book called I give, Finding Washington. That's right. Finding Washington, Why America Needs to Rediscover the Virtues of Her Most Essential Founding Father. That's a really long title. And so, um, so throughout the book, I give my email. It's Richard. R-I-C-H-A-R-D, Richard at findingwashington.com. Listen, even if you haven't read the book, uh, send me an email. I'd love to talk to you, but you can find the book at uh, almost any online uh, retailer. Excellent, man. Hey, uh, we just want to thank you so much for coming on here and talking to us about this. This is super important stuff. And uh, what better way to kind of frame um, where we should be heading for our future than looking to our past and what worked well then, because generally if it worked well, then it'll work well now. <laughs> um, but yeah, thank you for just, uh, having a heart for, um, seeking how to be more godly and, and how to, how to get us back on track as, as, uh, not just a nation, but I mean, I, I really think people from other countries could listen to this and, and get something out of it and, and hopefully strengthen their walk with God as well. Um, and so, yeah, thanks, Richard. We really appreciate it, man. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. 
Yeah, no problem. Um, guys, uh, if you've got questions for us, you can send those to salty saints at becomehope.com or questions at becomehope.com. And Randy, do you have any last thoughts? No, I do not. Sitting over there in all your sage-like wisdom. <laughs> um, right on. Well, until next time, stay salty. Hey friend, I'm Brooke McLaughlin, host of the Everyday Prayers Podcast, a ministry of million praying moms. And I'm here to invite you to partner with God for the hearts of your children on the daily. Our goal at Everyday Prayers is to help moms understand and pray God's word. Join us each weekday as we share insights from God's word for today's Christian mom. Tune in to the Everyday Prayers Podcast in your favorite app or by visiting lifeaudio.com.